There's been 2,000 years of revival history and evangelism in this nation. I want to talk to you about that uh, as briefly as I can in less than 30 minutes. 2,000 years of church history in less than 30 minutes. I'll do my best. I won't do it in real time, of course. But I want to read a scripture to you that the Lord's really been putting on my heart. And it's a prayer in Psalm 85. Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly, that means foolishness. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. When God revives his people... Glory comes to the land. If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. A lot of the references in today's message will come from a book that I really recommend by Bruce Atkinson. It's called Land of Hope and Glory, and it's about the history of revival since AD 43 when the gospel first came here, 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Great Britain was invaded by Romans under the Emperor Claudius. Emperor Claudius was, in fact, mentioned in the book of Acts. It's the same Emperor Claudius. So just 10 years after the resurrection, there's evidence that many Roman soldiers, as you see in the Bible, believed in Jesus, and as they traveled under the work of Rome, they would take the gospel with them. Sometimes you hear on history channels that Christianity came to Great Britain in AD 597. What they're referring to is when the Roman Catholic Church sent missionaries here. But the gospel's been here right from the start and was already aflame in Great Britain, which was made up of many, many kingdoms within the British Isles, both here and in Ireland. David Ross speaks about how there's two main thrusts of Christianity. The first thrust is more Celtic, Irish, Scottish, praise the Lord, and then Catholic later. Um, One of the main saints who really stands out in those initial five centuries is St. Patrick. You've all heard of St. Patrick, St. Patrick's Day. It's funny when we talk about saints, because if you are like me from a traditional Christian church, um, saints are just kind of people on the wall uh, in stained glass. But they're real people, and they were Holy Ghost evangelists that God works signs and wonders through. And I think sometimes it's important to think about people like this, that they were just ordinary people who believed in the extraordinary power of God, the transforming power of the gospel. St. Patrick, his name was Patricius. And uh, he emerges in the 300s. As a young man, he's captured by Irish pirates, taken abroad to Ireland, and uh, somehow escapes. He has a dream that he'll come back to uh, England. It wasn't really England then. It was actually, the Cum- it was actually Cumbria was the, was the kingdom that was there, so the Lake District, basically. So he gets back, and he starts to train in the scriptures as a cleric and starts to give himself to prayer and devotion, hearing the voice of God 
in dreams and other ways, knowing that he will go back to Ireland, but he knew God was putting it on his heart and birthing it in him over a period of 15 years. Patrick's prayers, a lot of the time, were about spiritual warfare. Because what all the great revivalists understand is that people, when they're not in Christ, they're in the kingdom of the devil. They're under the power and the influence of the devil. That's offensive for some people to hear that. But if you're not in Christ, you're not in his kingdom, by default you're serving and influenced by the kingdom of darkness. And so many of Patrick's prayers is, um, speaks about how he, I bind myself to the Trinity today. I bind myself to the power of heaven against all witchcraft and burning and sorcery and so on. He prayed this prayer all of the time. Because all, well, you see, when you stand for the kingdom of God, and you're pulling people into the kingdom of God, there's going to be a spiritual backlash. And this is what Patrick would, would, would encounter, and many revivalists, all, all revivalists, of course, that the kingdom of God moves the kingdom of darkness out of the way. It's greater, amen? And Patrick knew the power of the Spirit of God. So when he went into Ireland and began 30 years of ministry there, he was encountering witches and warlocks that would come against him with spells and all kinds of other accounts of really supernatural things. However, Patrick was still standing, still preaching, still leading people to faith, and had established a national church because it wasn't just one kingdom, it was about 13 different kingdoms with 13 pagan kings who all came to Jesus Christ. And this is Patrick's quote looking back, his famous quote. Never before did they know of God except to serve idols and unclean things. But now they've become the people of the Lord and are called the children of God. So God did a work in Ireland that would then influence the mainland of Great Britain. Over the coming centuries, other saints, other evangelists would pick up the fire, the flame of evangelism. People like Columba, St. Bede, Cuthbert. Um, and so many others, uh, many of them centered around the holy island of Lindisfarne. I don't know if anyone's ever been up to, yeah, a few of you. Saints would pray there uh, for the nation, they would have a life of sacrifice and monastic living. But they're encountering the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were praying earnestly for the nation to be revived because it was so pagan, so full of witchcraft. And God was going to use them to, to bring uh, the gospel, and when they would evangelize, many signs and wonders would break out. Some had incredible um, supernatural abilities to impart um, prosperity. They pray, you know, they put their hands literally on a farm, and by the next year, it would just be th a thriving farm, and it'd be a sign and a wonder to people in that area. Demons cast out, healing of the healings. But what happened over time is that things got a little bit more institutionalized. Uh, and this, was, this became difficult for evangelism. But I, I'm reminded, as I'm thinking about these Celtic saints, that they knew the power of the Spirit, and they were free, and they had often, so women were always involved in the ministry. Slavery ended in Ireland. Incredible things. It became, especially Ireland became a very different place. The United Kingdom, what we now call the United Kingdom, um, was a much stronger battle and would be for a while, but I'm reminded the words of Paul when he's in First Corinthians when he said, "My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, 
so that your faith would not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So that's what Paul has said to the Corinthian church. That is the model for evangelism, to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to go ahead of you and around you. And the kingdom of darkness cannot stand that. Amen. So these evangelists had incredible ministries. But the Roman Catholic Church, an institutionalized church, would then start to kind of move in. They essentially moved the Celtic approach out of the way. So those that were Celtic Christians could no longer run abbots and um, cathedrals and so on. So it became a lot more institutionalized around Rome, reporting to Rome. And that changed things. Over time, um, knowledge of the Bible was depleting really in the dark ages that was the 500s to the 1300s the the church the the established church the papacy was growing more and more powerful and domineering over the empire the idea of one pope one bishop overseeing all of them coming in that wasn't really there before in the dark ages you know there were so many plagues and disease and knowledge of the bible was really disappearing and it wasn't going to be too long before god was going to do something big to change that and step in to spiritual darkness in Europe. The 1300s, you meet a man called John Wycliffe. He's the first to translate the Bible into English. He translated from the Latin version of the Bible. And he started a movement that was essentially outside of the Roman Catholic system of worship. And these worshippers were called Lollards. And uh, they would meet with low voices, that's what it means, Lollards. And meet, not as a big political statement against the nation, but knowing God and understanding the biblical doctrine of justification by faith. Let me explain. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. Not through the church, not through sacraments, not through the merit of saints, not through the prayers of Mary, through faith in Jesus Christ, his grace alone. And the scriptures are sufficient to teach us that. So he's, he's as a priest and a scholar in Oxford, he's reading the Bible and he's like, the world needs to know this. So in a bold uh, statement, he, he translates it into English and then this this translation goes far. If you try to read that English translation, you really struggle <laughs> today. The English is so different to what we are used to. But over time, what was emerging in Europe and here in Britain was a reformation, a reform of what it means to be a Christian, not centered simply around Rome and the Pope and all of their doctrines, but around the teachings of the Bible, Amen. predominantly justification by faith. And it's not that the Roman Catholic Church had never taught that. It's just that that wasn't a big emphasis anymore. People like Wycliffe were encouraged, looking back at different saints like Augustine, who was in the, the 400s, reading about justification by faith. You know, this is a message that people need to understand, but they're not going to understand it unless they have the Bible. Other people felt the same way. People like uh, William Tyndale, who would then translate the Bible into English from the original Greek and Hebrew, not from the Latin. So it wasn't a translation of a translation. It was original languages that he was using to translate the Bible. And that was a little bit later on. That was the, the 1400s. But this started to then get people back to the idea of salvation by grace alone. And many of the things that the Catholic Church is teaching, they're too exposed, aren't they, if the Bible has been taught as it, as it is. And so this, this became difficult 
William Tyndale, I believe, was martyred. Um, Martin Luther would then come along and translate the Bible into German, and this would spark the European Reformation. A lot of persecution, but a lot of those nations were quickly pulling away from Rome and becoming Protestant. And again, it's not all about being Protestant. It's about knowing and loving Jesus. But it was an important step to get back to the biblical understanding of, of, of salvation and the gospel and worship. The 1500s, Anglicanism emerging, which is essentially a breaking away of the Catholic system. You have that both here and in places like Scotland, um, which was becoming more Presbyterian, coming under a different system. One of them was an incredible Scottish prophet, and I believe he was a prophet, and he knew the voice of the Lord. And you can just see him there, George Wissart. He started to again preach, saw many salvations. See, at no point, these revivalists, what you understand, they never said, oh, we're a Christian nation and just sit back. Always evangelism, always the demonstrations of the Spirit's power. Amen. And that's what, that's what George Wissart had. But he would be martyred and he knew that that day was coming. So he'd already started discipling another man, John Knox. And John Knox was called the Thundering Scot. He was very much an Elijah figure, preaching the gospel against signs of wonders, but a prophetic understanding of hearing God's voice, but proclaiming, like he would say, like a horn to the nation, like a trumpet. He couldn't simply keep it to himself, that people needed to know the gospel. He essentially helped the, the Scotland pull away from the Catholic system and become the church, Presbyterian Church of Scotland, um, which again had a lot of overlap still from the Catholic system. So although he was helping to make this happen, he didn't simply want to just have a halfway house approach to Christian living. He wanted to go all the way, the purest form of religion you could get, and that's called the Puritan movement. You might have heard that. So he would influence other people like Thomas Cramer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, the Anglican um, Archbishop of Canterbury, with the 39 articles of faith, Protestant dogma, and understanding uh, what it means to be away from the Roman system and under the gospel, influenced by many people like John Calvin. John Knox was persecuted all of his life, literally all of his life, but he knew that he needed to keep going. It was Mary, Queen of Scots, if anyone's heard of Bloody Mary, who was persecuted. It was very much like the story of Elijah and Jezebel playing out again with a genuine prophetic voice and a, a woman who was keen on his death, really. But he succeeded, and he brought such a sense of revival and understanding to the nation and, uh, and the knowledge of the Bible getting in people's hands. Again, Anglican churches would then have the Bible. You know, the average person would have the Bible. God's very clever because at the same time, the printing press had been invented just around that time that the Bible then go far and wide. How clever is that? God had coincided the technological advance, the biggest technological advance in a long time, with the preaching of the gospel. He's done it in our time as well with the internet. That when revival and awakening is emerging in the, in the world, the internet is here. So just to see the, the connection there. Does anyone recognize George Fox? Has anyone ever had Quaker Oats? 
that's what you recognize him as. Um, the Quaker man. Quaker means to shake. You see, there was different groups at this time, and they were very political. You had the Catholics, you had the Anglicans, you had Puritans, you had Presbyterians, and the New World is emerging now, the 1600s. You know, Africa is opening up, the Americas are opening up, Australia, and so on. And they're all very political, in, in a sense, and very religious. But there was a group that didn't want to be part of any of that in this very divided time in the United Kingdom, which was around the same time as the English Civil Wars, by the way. George Fox and his Quakers would get and they would seek the presence of the Lord, expecting the Holy Spirit to show up. And he did. In powerful ways, they saw signs and wonders, reports of them speaking in tongues. So people say, oh, there hasn't been tongues since the first century. Well, there has. And by the way, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. So just because it's not written down so much, by the way, it is written down in different places. Right? And this is one of the times where they would have ecstatic speaking of, t- of tongues, glossolalia, but also visionary experience almost being caught up to heven. And this was, it was an incredible thing. You know, people would fall and shake under the power of the Spirit. And they were Pentecostals before their time, really. And they weren't political. You see, over time, Puritans were focusing on um, how they can run places like America and influence America. And so, so it's very political. It seems to be that that that's became a big emphasis of a Puritan Christianity. You know, I think in America, they nearly banned Christmas, didn't they? The Puritans, they nearly banned Christmas because they've got to get back to pure religion. So they're kind of very religious, but again, not a big emphasis on the spirit. Over time, the Quakers, although they were full of the spirit and would have these... Um, meetings in taverns and other places where the spirit would show up, they got caught up in their business and their trade more than anything. So anyone ever heard of Cadbury's chocolates? All of that stuff comes from this time. A lot of the foods that we enjoy, the reason why they made such foods uh, and introducing them again, like drinking chocolate and all these things, was because people just drank so much in the United Kingdom. And they thought creatively, Lord, help us to create food and drink that's just not going to be alcohol all the time. <laughs> Are you with me? So that's why they made hot chocolate and coffee drinks and that kind of stuff. It's good, isn't it? And we enjoy it. So here's the thing. R- revivalists and revival movements can get derailed in all kinds of ways. They can go down being political and divided. They can go around biz- being business-minded. And at some point or another, the passion for souls goes. The passion for souls disappears and someone else has to pick up the mantle. And so when you get to the 1700s, you have a new movement called the Methodist movement. George Whitfield, again, powerful preacher, would go into the heart of London and other places where there's so much sin and would just set up a little pulpit and just preach and people would come under the power of God. Now, here's the thing. They were looking, they were looking for the method outlined in the Bible. That's where the term comes from, the method of reading the Bible verse by verse. Now, here's the thing. Although they were learning the Bible, although they were around it, the true conversion of the heart for 
Whitfield and John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley was coming a little bit later. And in fact, John Wesley as an Anglican minister had a very much failed ministry in the United States. He went there to preach and to convert really the, the colonial Europeans and maybe the Native Americans as well. And it just didn't work. There was just no power. There was no nothing. So he gets back very discouraged on a ship, uh, a transatlantic ship, and is seeking God, what, what do you want me to do? You know, And this is the time when he comes under an understanding of personal salvation through Jesus, that he died for me. And he, he, he speaks about how my heart was strangely warmed at that point. And he experienced true conversion and would be marked with the Holy Spirit's power in, an, in a very powerful way. They all were in their own way, at their own journeys to that point. But you see, Charles Wesley was also a preacher, but more of a worship leader than anything else. He'd write many of the songs we still sing, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, all these amazing Wesleyan hymns that come from that time, the 1700s, that would have the Bible and the doctrine of the Bible within the songs because people were not as illiterate as they are now. So it was important to get those songs. Now, here's the thing. John Wesley would preach. He's an Anglican minister, gets to his little, uh, little church, preaches a message, get out. <laughs> Next church, get out. Big why? Too confrontational. It's too difficult. And the enemy, the devil, doesn't like the message of true salvation and conversion going forward. It sounds extreme. Again, there's always a power struggle somewhere. And this is what was happening. So he thought, if I can't preach in churches, I'll preach in the fields. I'll preach to the miners. I don't mean children. I mean the people go in the mines. Yeah? The power of God would fall on fields. And they'd be weeping and wailing under the power of the Spirit. But he wasn't simply just preaching and going. He was preaching and keeping the souls People had come to faith. He would pastor them. He'd make sure that there were ministers and people in place. So he had to quickly, by God's help, put systems in place and ordain lay preachers, lay ministers to go and preach and go on circuits, both here and in the United States as well. And he had a very complex apostolic mission, which resulted in the first and second great, great awakenings in the 1700s. And uh, many other preachers were coming along at that time, people like Jonathan Edwards. The nation was coming back to God. The nations were coming back to God. You know, America is largely Christian because of the ministry of such people. Amen? Amen. These are Holy Ghost people that saw the power of God, casting out devils, all kinds of things, but preaching the message of salvation and personal conversion and purity and holiness making sure that all their ministers were growing in holiness. You get to the end of the 1700s, the Wesleys are gone now. Methodism is still there and having a big influence in society, influencing the abolition of slave trade, 1833. Anyone seen Amazing Grace? What a credible film, well worth watching. But again, Methodists under um, Wesleyan teaching. So... The social reform became the flavor of Methodism. But the preaching and the soul winning was, wasn't necessarily a big emphasis at that point. So God had to raise other people up in different places. A man called Hugh Bourne in the, in the Midlands, Derbyshire, Staffordshire, where I'm from, preaching 
at these parties called wakes, three days of drinking and adultery and all of that. And he'd go and he'd preach the gospel in these tent revival meetings. And this again brings a new movement of primitive Methodism, getting back to what Wesley and others had laid out. See, like we said earlier, like we read last week from the book of Habakkuk, write these things down, God said to Habakkuk, so that a herald can run with the vision. And what we have is people writing down what they saw, what happened. And we can read it and we can pick up the mantle. Amen. That's what today's about, by the way. So you go through the 1800 primitive Methodism is the flavor of evangelism. And again, it has a huge influence on other evangelists and revivalists that were coming out of the time, particularly Spurgeon, who began his ministry in the 1850s, preaching repentance, right, coming back to God, finding his faith in his early years, but a very powerful, strong way from, his, from the age of 16, preaching in Cambridgeshire. When I first did my first sermon in King's Church in Cambridge, I was saying, Lord, do you want me to preach? And I was trying to seek some kind of confirmation. Uh, so I cycled home a different way. And I cycled past the house and said, this is the house where Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon first preached his sermon. I thought, thanks for the confirmation. <laughs> so he preached in a little house. And someone said to him, how old are you? He said, never mind how old I am. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And a uh, little, little church in Water Beach, they wanted him to be the pastor at the age of 16 because he just preached the fire of God. He was called then to London, and he would have 50, really 50 years of ministry there, preaching to possibly over 10 million people in his lifetime with a powerful prophetic gifting as well. Again, all the components of revival, always the same, intercessory prayer, sacrificial living, True preaching, bold preaching of the gospel. He would, uh, there'd be crowds of people in these London venues, and he'd say, Young man, the gloves in your pocket are not paid for. And, and the man would come to him and say, Please don't say anything more. <laughs> because he, and he would say, Suppose a man was drinking gin, and he went up to the balcony up here, he'd speak like this, and there'd be a man who's doing that. He just knew spiritually the, the Spirit of God was on him in a powerful way. And, um, you know, when he died in the, I believe it was the 1890s, um, all the streets of London were lined up with people coming to pay him respects, just like they did for the death of Diana and the Queen and others. He had a powerful impact on the nation and abroad as well, planting churches and Bible colleges. Anyone heard of William Booth? Anyone heard of Salvation Army? You'll see them at Christmas. You can't miss them at Christmas. You know, at some Sunday in December, you'll hear brass instruments passing by. But his thing about William Booth, he was a true Holy Ghost revivalist. He was a Methodist, but he, he found the system to be a little bit stiff. So he was preaching in places like Cornwall, saw 7,000 people come to faith in just a matter of weeks. And uh, would come back and come to the Methodist church. Said, well, what's next? And they said, well, why didn't you lead this region and do this? And his wife shouted out from the back of this convention, never! <laughs> you know, he's a revivalist. And, he's, and he went to London. And he, he went right into the heart of um, Victorian England. You know, if anyone's seen Oliver Twist and all of those. Yeah, all those kind of times. That's the time he lived in. Really dark, 
gangs, you know, pubs on every, every corner. We're not just drinking houses, like hard drinking houses, you know. And the things people, you know, uh, I know there's children in the room, but the things that were done, you know, um, to women and all of that time. And he was right in the heart of it. And he took such a beating. And it was hard to pull people out of the devil's hand in London than it was in other places. Such a spiritual stronghold. But he didn't want to be political. He said, we're not political. We're not organized like it's a typical church. We're an army. And we're pulling people out of devil's kingdom. And we're advancing as Christian soldiers against the works of the devil in this land. And saw hundreds and thousands of people come to faith. Genuinely. At his death, the queen sat down next to a lady in his funeral and said, you know, introduced herself as the queen, came in unannounced. And the lady said to her, you know, I used to be a prostitute until William, Res- William Booth rescued me. Just a powerful, powerful ministry. And uh, was led with a vision of souls. How did, did anyone know about the Sea of Souls vision? He saw the souls of the nation drowning and he saw people pulling them out of the sea. But then he saw some of those people who had been pulled out of the sea no longer helping to pull people out anymore, just busy with their own lives. And so he had this call, we've got to do something. Beaten up and you know, more, more times than you can imagine. Someone actually spat on him once as he was going into a meeting. And someone was about to wipe it off. And he said, no, leave it on. It's a medal. These people had something else, man. These people had something else, but they set the stage for something else that was coming in the 20th century. There'd been other revivals, the Ulster Revival, 1859 in Ireland. 100,000 people converted as the Spirit of God descended, and people were caught up in visions and trances, not even in church, just out in the street, coming under the conviction of the Spirit. Ulster Revival, well worth checking out. And uh, they'd ne- they didn't really know what was happening, but they knew it was God. And people would be delivered and changed in these encounters with the Holy Spirit. So all of this is, is, is bubbling and emerging over the time. Then you get to the 20th century, where all of this is coming to a head in a new way. And there's one man who's seeking revival, again, knowing what Charles Finney had experienced and others. His name was Evan Roberts from Wales. Excuse my Welsh accent. But in 1904 to 1905, I saw hundreds of thousands of people coming to faith as the Spirit was poured out on Wales. Pubs were emptying. Prisons were emptying. People were singing and worshipping and praying almost all the time over a period of a year. It was, it was like nothing else. And uh, this was the Welsh revival. But... It was difficult for Evan Roberts because they highlighted him as the man. They celebrated the man. They put a big banner up saying, Welcome, man of God, Evan Roberts. And he said, Today the revival has ended. Because they were focusing too much on him. And so, just around the corner, within this revival, were two brothers who you may have heard of, George and Stephen Jeffries. He started our own movement, Elim movement, by the way. Powerfully encountered the Holy Spirit, touching their face like lightning and healing them of different things. 
in their in their childhood they had various sicknesses that God healed them supernaturally of and uh, they were changed and transformed this is George Jeffries on the left and there's his brother on the right they could not be more different personality wise God moved and they preached four square gospel Jesus the Savior Jesus the healer Jesus the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and Jesus the coming King that's why we're the Elim Foursquare Gospel Alliance, because we preach the emphasis on Jesus being these four things. So people were encountering the Spirit of God, speaking in tongues, but he was a lot more slow and steady, methodical and intellectual, highly intelligent man, would fill the Royal Albert Hall. I know that, that those meetings carried on for a long time, didn't they, Janet? Yeah. Um, for, for decades after that time. And people were encountering the power of God all over. Salvation in almost every part of the United Kingdom. Started in Ireland, but when it came here and Wales, it was, it was very, very powerful. They had to do something with all of these people, so they planted Elim churches, and that's where it comes from. Other movements as well, Stephen Jeffries, again, was a little bit more unpredictable, a little bit more... Um, He's not so well known. In fact, a lot of, not a lot of people know. Everyone knows George, but they don't know Stephen. You know, at one of the meetings with Stephen Jeffries, it's reported by a well-known minister that a blind girl was going into the meeting. And this minister thought, why is she going into this meeting? And Stephen Jeffries put his hands on that girl's head and eyeballs grew back. People leaving wheelchairs all of the time. They'd have a wall full of crutches and wheelchairs and other equipment to aid them. All he ever knew was revival. You'd never get him in a nice committee meeting. He's just always preaching, <laughs> always going for it, always praying. And uh, nothing could stop him. Never wasted a moment. Or the revivalists in that time, Smith Wigglesworth, second from the left. Got to check out Smith Wigglesworth again. Northerner, Bradford. But when the Spirit got hold of him, yeah, God, God even used him to raise the dead at a funeral. People, like, these people walked in something else. AA body you see in the middle. Again, Anglican minister, um, but encouraging other vicars to understanding the power of God. And they had things like the Keswick Convention and were stewarding this new move of God that was coming, which was called Pentecostalism or full gospel preaching. It's powerful. We're here today because of it, amen? We're here today because such people sought after the power of God. You go through the 20th century, I'm nearly there, everyone. 20th century, other revivals take place. Lower stuff revival. Lower stuff, just down the road. Of all places in 1921. People coming under the conviction of the Spirit, even out at sea. Shops with signs up in the window saying, we don't need any more shovels because people were stealing from shops all the time and feeling bad and then I'll bring the shovel back to the shop. There were hundreds of shovels in that shop. I said, we're all right for shovels, keep them now. Because why? Because conviction and of sin. Hebrides, again, another obscure place. Hebrides revival, 1949. Duncan Campbell. They just, it was just an ongoing prayer meeting but the whole island and parts of Scotland were coming back to faith and experiencing the power of God. And it just seemed to continue. 
not only here but around the world. There's so many revivals I could talk to you about. Korean revival, Argentina. Um, uh, that's what the 20th century was all about. Revival coming. And then, surprising to Pentecostals, landing on the traditional denominations of Baptists and Anglicans and even Catholics receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And today we have such movements. John Wimber, again, many of you will know, Vineyard Movement in the 80s. Many of you are part of that. The Gospel coming in Crusades, Billy Graham preaching the Gospel to crowds on TV. My own grandmother was converted that way, praise God, through Billy Graham. Worcester Cathedral there, full of people praising God in the power of the Spirit. Big change called the Charismatic Renewal. And even today you go to meetings and people who know the power of the Spirit, they could be from any denomination. It doesn't matter anymore. You know, we don't have the monopoly on the Holy Spirit as Pentecostals. We never did. But it caught fire and it's still catching fire. Where are we now? We're in a great drama of God's salvation story. We've got the first three acts of the story. The Old Testament, the New Testament, church history. We've got the fifth and final act of the story, which is the end of days. But we're living in the unwritten act. We're living in the unwritten chapter of God's story of salvation. We're on the verge of global evangelism like never before. I'll be helping with a stadium evangelism on the 7th of January with Christ for Nations, filling Wembley Arena and other, other events that are on the horizon. God is on the move in our nation. We prayed for our nation. God, do it again. Revive us again. He's done it in every century. Why wouldn't he do it in this one? Knowing what we know. Amen. Can you just stand to your feet with me, please, as we just pray right now that God would do it again. Do you believe he'll do it?